are tuning in to the Love Breezy Bree Yoga podcast. My name is Bree, and you can find me at lovebreezybreeyoga.com. Check out the show notes for more information, including a link to my website. Thank you so much for listening. Namaste. Hello! I am so excited for lesson number two. I know that the last session ran a little bit longer, so I think I'll be able to catch us back up during my session today. So I hope you all were here for last week's lesson on Zoom. This is really a fun opportunity, whether you're a teacher, a student, practitioner, however you classify yourself to be able to learn more and deepen your own practice or your teachings. So I am focused on teaching through the study of your body, your yoga. And this lesson today is going to be all about finding our edge. Now, this is a concept, what I like to call yoga speak, where we say words or we utilize ideas that we just assume Everyone understands because they're in a yoga studio or what have you. And I think it's really important not to make that assumption because we all understand the implications of doing such things, but especially when we're talking about learning about our bodies. So what does it mean to find your edge? Do not go beyond your edge. Take yourself to your edge when thinking about your practice of yoga. And that is exactly what we are going to discuss in today's lesson. So it is important, however, to understand what your edge is, not only from a physical perspective, but from an emotional perspective psychological, and spiritual place as well. I always like to say that yoga will always meet you on the mat. And whenever I tell my students that, what I'm really trying to convey is whoever you are, the good especially, but even where you have room to grow and heal, yoga's right there meeting you, bridging that gap between who you are and where you want to be, or who you are and who you're comfortable being, but bridging back to the philosophy of yoga. So the moment that you begin your practice, you are entering into a safe, sacred space of your will. And that's really important to remember because you want to stay introspective and not allow external factors to completely convolute your own practice. Now, obviously, external factors are definitely going to contribute to your experience as a student or a practitioner of this beautiful philosophy, but it shouldn't be the only thing that factors into how you practice yoga. So there are valid reasons to consider your quote-unquote edge. Danger lurks around every corner, and I am paraphrasing through my study of Your Body, Your Yoga by the lovely teacher and author, Bernie Clark, author of The Complete Guide to Yin Yoga, and my favorite, Your Body, Your Spine. And that is the, um, this is the book that we're working with throughout this series. So the idea is that when you first begin practicing yoga, your body might be stiff. You might have ailments, old injuries, things of that nature. Depending on what brought you to the practice to begin with, you might be wanting to have a physical benefit. Now, many people want an emotional or mental benefit, such as relaxation, stress release, and being able to heal traumas. Now, as you all know, I am a trauma-informed yoga teacher, and so I am always thinking about how does this practice, this lesson, this philosophy, this discipline, this teaching work with my clients who are typically those who are very cognizant of their trauma, their past traumas, you know, their triggers, or they are really willing to do the work to be able to heal 
from such traumas. So I like to teach from that being my perspective. However, that isn't necessarily the only or the best way to approach yoga for sure. But what I love about that approach is it's safe for everybody. For those who have lesser traumas or have done the work or healed or feel healed, they might feel bored in a trauma-informed type practice because those classes are all about choosing certain language, choosing certain poses, making sure that there's no anxiety that's being presented through pratyama, the breath work, because there are levels and different ways to go about practicing asana, meditation, and pratyama, which are just three of the eight limbs of yoga under the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. So it's a large philosophy with many disciplines, some that lean really heavily into a spiritual base, maybe even with religious undertones or influences and others that are very modernized and everything in between. So there's definitely space for every practitioner. And it's really important to realize that you have options. Now, as I tell my students, especially as I mentioned, those who are coming to me from more of a therapeutic or trauma-informed place, look, just when you think you're healed, something might trigger you or you might go through something that causes a grievance, death of a loved one, a breakup, whatever it may be. And you may need to lean back on to the principles that you learned in a trauma-informed practice or attend that type of practice again. Now, for most, however, we tend to enter into all level classes, rather it's vinyasa flow or hatha yoga. We tend to end up in this more general population of the discipline of asana, or the postures and the poses. And it's important for you to understand yourself because it's not going to be specialized or particular to any type of discipline or teaching philosophy. It might literally be based on whatever the theme or the situation presents in that particular class. As a yoga teacher, one of our skill sets is to be able to read the room, to be able to modify our sequences or progress through the postures so that they can go from, let's say, a level one to a higher level of that exact same posture, to be able to pay attention and not be tone deaf to the students that are before you. That's what I like to think of as a true yoga teacher. Now, some people consider themselves yoga instructors, and I've talked about on my own podcast, Yoga Podcast, shameless plug, um, but I've talked about what I consider the difference between a yoga teacher and a yoga instructor, and I will not go into depth here, but ultimately, teaching is just that. It's learning. There's a reciprocation of feeling like you have an understanding and I like to think that the best student is one that can go on to teach that exact lesson to someone else. And you really have to be a student of this practice, regardless if you are in the presence of a quote-unquote teacher or not. You are essentially your own teacher. And the fact that you're here at this lesson, at this entire workshop, and wanting to deepen your own practice or the study of yoga for yourself and for others speaks volumes. Okay, so as I was kind of going into, when we think about beginners who come into the practice, you might be stiff, you might have issues with the body or lack of body awareness, or you might be a full-on athlete you know, former pro dancer, whatever your case may be, gymnast, and not have the same issues as everyone else. But the fact is, is that you might want to begin to find what your edge is to prevent injury. Injury is something that 
more advanced yoga practitioners. And by advanced, I don't necessarily mean being able to do a handstand, but someone who is probably practicing the eight limbs of yoga as a lifelong daily practice. It's ingrained into who they are at this point. The ability or potential, I don't know if ability is the right word, but the potential of having a yoga-related injury from asana practice is higher with this quote-unquote advanced practitioner than it is for a beginner. But what we learn as beginners is going to be really important to preventing such injuries at any time throughout your practice. Now, sadly, we do not tend to learn a lot as students when we first begin practicing yoga. We are literally, as mentioned, just wanting to resolve or fix or create some wellness type mindset, which is beautiful, right? We start yoga because we want to heal an injury or we want to get more flexible, something I always hear people say, or, you know, they want to learn a certain posture or pose like headstand, handstand, crow, some balancing posture, Um, or they want to relax and have a stress-free life or get better sleep. Those are pretty much the top murmurs that I hear when people are new to the practice. Now, I'm not going to get into the fact that that isn't technically the important part of practicing yoga, because you know that. You understand that the philosophy and the mind-body-spirit connection is so beautiful. The breath work, the moving meditation, the non-moving meditation, all of that is what really does make up a yogic practice. However, when we think about it from a place of just starting out of nowhere, most of those students, those practitioners, are not coming into the practice to necessarily learn anything deep or even about the philosophy or about the limbs. And it's a teacher's responsibility and a studio's responsibility to be able to integrate those teachings throughout classes. And that's where the teaching versus instructional type of yoga is, I think, lives. So teachers can show you how to play your edge and when to go past your edge. But this requires trust, trust for yourself, and of course, trust toward the teacher. Now, when we think about the edge, the edge is always just what it sounds like, the edge of a cliff, right? It's like knowing how far you should go before you're on the other side of the cliff. Now, sometimes... We do not know what that edge is, and that's okay because it is something that your ego is going to battle with your nervous system. Now, I always like to say that the nervous system's entire job is to keep us alive, right? When we feel that anxiety creep up when we're on an edge of a cliff, let's say you're hiking and it just looks so beautiful. And then all of a sudden you look down and you're like, whoa, and you feel anxiety come up or you're on that roller coaster, right? That's your nervous system going like, hello, (laughs) I don't know if this is safe. And then your ego is telling you, oh, you've got this. You'll be fine. You're not going to fall off of that edge. Go ahead and look over. Go ahead and take your hands in the air as we go down the mountain of a roller coaster. Whatever it is, that's that battle. Now, finding that healthy space in that edge is something that you're going to have to learn. And again, bringing back in that trauma-informed influence, that's something that those who have suffered from trauma, especially more severe levels that might even have post-traumatic stress syndrome or disorder is going to have a little bit more discernment and trouble discerning that level of edge because maybe not understanding who they are and trusting themselves is going to be an issue. So we always want to create that discernment and be able to 
identify where we're at on the spectrum. I like to use the chakra system, which I talked about in the last lesson for all of that. So as mentioned, there is a physical edge. There is an emotional edge. There is a psychological edge. And in your body, your yoga, the idea is the physical edge takes you just before the place where injury exists. And the emotional edge takes you to either a place of total contentment, right? Which is also that idea of enlightenment, right? That crown chakra space. But can also be a place of just fun, happiness, feeling elated, feeling joy, or the opposite, fear, feeling sadness, anxiety. And then we have the psychological edge where Bernie discusses this idea of psychosis, like going above that edge is where that will erupt. And then, of course, I saved the best for last, was that spiritual edge. And this is where freedom is truly found, right? And really, actually, that's the space of the crown chakra and beyond. Now, edges are where something is about to happen, sometimes for ill and sometimes for good. Now, the body is always talking to us if we listen, And in our physical yoga practice, we are encouraged to approach the edge, which is the limit of tolerance of the tissues to the mechanical stresses being applied through the postures. Now, the body speaks warning us of impending injuries by sending us little tweaks. These small signals of pain and discomfort are important, and we ignore them at our at our peril. Now, for little tweaks become big tweaks that suddenly turn into the structural failure and long-lasting injury. The body needs challenges to stay strong and healthy, so too little stress and the tissues atrophy. However, too much stress and the tissues degenerate. If we fear our edge, we will default to a situation of too little And that is truly unfortunate. If we ignore our edge, we will ignorantly go over the edge and fall into the damage and decay. So quick little interjection here. Personal trainers, especially those who specialize in bodybuilding or strength training, they are always focused on this edge, right? You want to get in that that last rep, the one that you barely can do because that's like, that takes you just over the peak of your edge, but not enough for you to try to do it more than the one time. So it's like to failure. Now, some believe that to failure is going over the edge and that could result in injury. So What is the right answer? Well, just like anything else in health, fitness, science, there's an art to everything. And the idea is depending on your body and depending on your mindset. So typically our bodies are stronger than our mind. When I was a runner and I used to run marathons and I took my stab at an ultra, One of the things that I focused on was good training, good nutrition, of course, but realizing that the voice in my mind is going to be much weaker than my actual physical state. Like my physical state is fine um, or at least healthier than my mind. So I need to push past the voice in my mind that's telling me you're tired, you don't want to do this, you hate this. But not at the rejection of listening to my actual body alerting me if I have any pain. And that's exactly the same thing, whether you're practicing yoga or you're weightlifting or you are running or anything else. 
It's that idea that you need to know what it feels like when your body's in pain and you never, ever push back, push past that edge. However, there's a difference between pain and either being stressed, bored, tired, grumpy, <laughs> lazy. And those are the things that you have to figure out for yourself. Sometimes I think I'm being tired or I am tired and I realize I'm just being lazy. And so again, something for you to really start to think about during your own practices of life. Now, playing the physical edge requires both intention and attention. The intention to be whole and healthy and attention to the body's signals and sensations. So in a yoga pose, we come to the point of challenge, our first edge, but then we back off a little. That first approach is a brief look over the cliff to see what danger lurks below if we push too far. But our body is adaptable and our edges are living things. They change if we respect them. Now, once we have approached the edge, checked it out, then backed off a little bit, not so far that there's no challenge at all, but enough so the edge is still in sight, the body relaxes. Now, when the body fully trusts, it opens. The edge recedes, inviting you to follow. In time, and it could be a very short time or a very long time, you will know this by paying attention, the edge moves and you may safely approach it once more. Repeating the cycle of approach, observation, slight withdrawal, patience, awaiting the next movement. So think about that. Basically, that lends to the fact that yoga is a lifelong practice. It's like trying to meditate for 30 seconds, and then that turns into five minutes, and that may turn into an hour for some or beyond. Or being able to hold a plank for five seconds and then for 60 seconds. It's not something that you're trying to accomplish in your first session or even maybe your 50th session. But with consistency and intention, you will start to see your edge move. And it is so amazing in yoga when you can see that, when you can actually tell the progression now, when I teach my mixed level classes, like in a flow class, for instance, I don't like to modify postures down unless I'm working one-on-one -on -one with a student, but rather I like to take a posture at its most simplest form and start to move it up a notch and then move it up a notch. And maybe this happens in the exact same moment or session, or maybe it's over several classes. Ultimately, though, what I'm doing is I'm showing the student what the edges look like when they start to progress. And that's exactly what you begin to notice in your own practice. And it's really magnificent if you're working with mobility issues, like a full, you know, um, external rotation of the shoulder, let's just say, not being able to do that to being able to do that. Or another example would be taking your hands behind your back, interlacing your fingers. Maybe that was something you weren't able to do prior to, but now you're having the mobility in your shoulders to be able to bring your shoulders down and bring your blades together and interlace those fingers, right? So it's really fascinating to be able to see that over time. One of the neatest compliments that a student gave me that I worked with was she wasn't able to, she had noticed her posture, I should say, increase throughout our time working together. And she was able to notice this through the rear view mirror of her car. She was able to one day just see out of it without having to lift her body up and she started to pay more attention to her spine and she was like oh my goodness my bit of curvature so just that posture and some of that 
inflexibility of the spine was beginning to become more flexible, more lengthened, strength mus- or strong muscles creating strength around that spine. All of the stuff that just comes from a consistent practice. So with all of that said, you can start to see how you can find your edge. So if you're trying to interlace your hands behind your back, but it's better for you to take opposite elbows or knuckles and knuckles, forcing yourself to take your hands and interlace them, one, is probably not even going to be a possibility. But two, even if you accomplish it, it's going to be extremely painful and possibly cause injury. And it's going to tell your nervous system that this is not a good idea. Therefore, every time you try to do it, you're going to tense up and it's going to begin to be less possible. And furthermore, your subconscious will begin to take note. And that note that your subconscious is taking could be something as simple as you don't like that posture, you don't like to do that, to you just don't like yoga or even more negative thoughts. So I think that's really important to think about it from that perspective as well, which leads us and segues into the emotional edge. Now, our body responds to emotions in observable ways, and our emotions respond to our body, that mind-body connection. When we experience strong emotions, our body reacts. We may feel flushed, tight, hot, butterflies in the stomach, There's a host of sensations that might come up. But when we move our body, as we do in our yoga practice, we may also trigger emotional responses. Again, with trauma-informed yoga, this is pretty much the place that I teach from is the emotional edge. Because again, the body is probably more capable than the mind. And emotionally, if you're being triggered by let's say closing your eyes or having your back toward the front door or someone touching you to give you an adjustment or having your feet bare or being in a particular posture, even like down dog or happy baby, something that makes you feel vulnerable, that is going to create the same physical sensation as your body jumping over that cliff. So with that, there is a circular flow between the body and the heart slash mind. Well understood by Chinese Taoists and Indian yogis. Cause and effect. A favorite Western conceptual map is linear, but look beyond this to the circulatory of effect. Cause, effect, cause, effect, cause, effect. So instead of it just being cause and effect, which is very linear, it's circular. What causes something affects something. What affects something causes something. And it just goes on and on in a circle. Let me take a drink of my hot tea. Don't forget, if you have any questions, you can wave your hand or you can put something in the chat. We have moderators during today's lesson to help me filter out any questions that you may have. Also, if you're taking notes, I want you to really focus on your practice. Um, The more deep our own practices, it will translate into our teaching, whether you're teaching others or back to teaching self. Now, oh, and I just want to add one more thing. Another reason why I, even when I work in yoga teacher trainings, I still like my teachers to think about whatever they're learning from their perspective because if we only think about it from our students' perspective, we take ourselves out of being the student first and foremost, but also we get to ignore our own responses to the same information that we're trying to teach. So if we are uncomfortable with thinking about something and we want to just skip over that and teach it instead, it doesn't really translate authentic, authentically. There's no authenticity to your experience 
shifting over. And a, the beauty of teaching yoga is that connection with others. Okay. So my little sidebar there. Now, as we have physical edges beyond which we risk tearing open the tissues of the body, so too we have emotional edges beyond which we risk tearing open the heart. If the edges push too fast and too hard, an emotional opening may become an emotional injury. Pay attention. If you can't go deeper in a posture, you may have reached an emotional edge. You may well be able to physically go deeper, but your heart knows that to go deeper may trigger an emotional crisis that you are not yet ready to face. Ah, beautifully said, because our bodies have an infinite wisdom about them. Our intuition, that gut that lives within, is very tuned in, even if we cannot consciously tune into it yet ourselves. But what's important here is to think about the ideas such as balancing on one leg. If you're having a really tough time balancing and you've grounded your energy, you've created a meditative state of mind, you're very secure with your breath work, you know, you've done all that you know you can do but you're still wiggly wobbly, the first thing I want you to tell yourself is, well, I must have a lot on my mind. My mind must be elsewhere. There must be something happening deep in my subconscious that I need to let go. And then just ask for grace, ask for release, and see if you're able to balance better. And if you're still not able to balance better, give yourself the opportunity to do it another time, right? Um, deep back bends, you know, that could be also really challenging when, because think about it this way, to do a deep back bend is a very flexible motion of the spine. And if you normally can do deep back bends and then this one particular practice you cannot, you need to allow yourself to think about, are you not being flexible somewhere in your life? Do you need more flexibility in your schedule? What's happening that is stopping you from being as flexible as you normally are? And that could be true of any posture, but I like to think of it with the deep back bends for sure. So it's such a vulnerable posture anyway, because you're opening up your heart to the full extent, your throat chakra, and so if you're having a really hard time doing that, those could be some of the reasons. Also, lower back pain, hip pain, tight hips, all of these things can be due to stress, but asking yourself what type of stress. You know, shoulders, I like to think of all of the sayings that we all know so well, like carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders. Are you responsible for too much or for someone else? And it's showing up in your shoulders and your neck. Is someone a pain in your neck and you're having neck pain? Pain in your lower back? You know, um, tight hips can definitely be the need to release maybe heartbreak in some space, right? Um, so there's some esoteric spiritual psychological, emotional ways to look at it. Um, but there can also be other things as well, you know, from a more yoga therapy point of view as um, it could be easily something that is attributed to something literally physical, right? Tight hips could be something that's happening within the body with the psoas, the kidneys, the bladder, the pelvic girdle, something from that space, um, your reproductive system, or even all the way up into your throat, your mouth, your teeth, your jaw, um, things of that nature as well. Your lower back can be coming from an imbalance with something with your knees. So there's a lot of different 
things that you can do to start to investigate your particular situation, but it's all going to be based on what is the norm for you. So if every day this week I was able to balance on one leg and then now I'm just having a really tough time, just ask yourself a few quick questions. Are you tired? Are you exhausted? Do you have a lot on your mind? And see if you can release it. Okay. Alrighty. So with the emotional ideas, you want to make sure you never force the edge. There are times, however, that we need to be pushed over the emotional edge. And this is where you would want to really work with someone one-on-one. You know, rather it's a therapist and you need to do something a little bit more particular or it's trauma-informed yoga or it's a meditation guide or it's just a one-on-one, you know, um, session with a yoga teacher or a yoga therapist or an Ayurvedic specialist, something, whatever it may be, it could be something you just need to continue to work on. Now, let's talk about the psychological edge. Now, this is interesting because we talk a lot about the shadow side, right? Doing the work of healing the shadow. And psychological edges is really this idea that you could be just really leaning into a lower vibration like fear or anxiety or maybe a compulsion or withdrawal. Um, It could be really suffering from trauma. It could be something diagnosable or not. But the main thing is when you're practicing yoga, what are the thoughts that are coming to your mind? If the thoughts that are coming to your mind are the opposite of serving you, right? They're actually holding you back. This could be where you're entering into a psychological side of self. You know, you're hitting that edge. Now, in trauma-informed yoga, that could feel like you're in a posture and maybe you're having a flashback or you're being triggered or you feel really uncomfortable or you actually have a thought in your mind that, isn't good, a good thought for you to have. Um, It could even be something like, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I wish I were thinner, I wish I were more flexible, I wish I looked like him across the room or her over there. Um, That's a psychological edge. And whatever is pushing you to feel that way, you need to take a step back and acknowledge that. If it's because you are having a tough time in a posture or balance pose or whatever the case may be. Um, And those thoughts come up. I had a student once tell me that every time she's doing something that requires her to touch her toes and she has to bend her knees, she berates herself, you know? And we worked through some of that. But again, that's that psychological edge. We need to focus on the work that needs to be done in the mind and not push the body, right? Because the body's going to tense up and it's like the more you want it for the most negative purpose, the less likely it's going to be done in a way that's beneficial for the mind, body, spirit connection. Now let's talk about the spiritual edge because this is one that I think comes up quite often um, with people who are worried about yoga impeding on their belief systems in one way or another. Now, I like to think of the spiritual edge as being you're in a yoga class or practice and maybe they're chanting or aming or doing something that makes you feel uncomfortable. That's your spiritual edge. Now, the question is, are you comfortable with being in the space and just not participating Or is it going to turn into something psychological where you cannot even be in that particular class or with that teacher or that studio or that discipline? 
And that's something that you would have to discern for self. Another thing is thinking about it from a place of freedom. When you do allow yourself to be open to whatever your spirit's being called to in a positive way and assuming that your connection back to spirit is positive in your mind, right? That you already think of that concept as being a good concept, then it allows you to be a student and not just be a practitioner, right? Um, another example of this would be Sanskrit. Uh, some studios really frown upon Sanskrit being utilized um, because there's possibly a spiritual connotation, a religious connotation, but particularly because there's a vibrational effect of Sanskrit according to the philosophy of yoga. And I think that that's something that I believe is taking it too far um, beyond the spiritual edge. I think that having those types of spirituality practices in, in a class that you call yoga, if it's under the sutras of Patanjali, philosophy and teaching is important. Um, so that's what I think of when I think of the spiritual edge. I see that we have a question. So give me just a second. Let me read it. Okay, so this this um, attendee is asking, and it went directly to me. I'm looking at it now. Didn't even go to the full group, so I'm not going to mention their name. Um, they are asking if there is, if you're a yoga teacher, should you be focusing, like where should you focus on how to cue your students and teach them utilizing these edges? And that's a really great question, and I think for the most part, it's something that is inherent and something that you probably are already doing as a teacher without realizing it because what you're doing is you are having your student set an intention or you're having your student be mindful, right? So that's going to lean into that mental side of self, that emotional, maybe even psychological side. You're having your student you know, progress through postures, maybe modify postures, utilizing props. So that's going to lend itself to the physical edge. And then spiritually speaking, you're having your students be introspective, right? So you're having them listen to themselves, what they want, their body, and you're giving them cues um, and, and options throughout class, even something as simple as taking a child's pose, at any time during class lends itself into making that mind-body-spirit connection because it's going to give them autonomy. And autonomy in that sense is truly freedom. So great question. Now, obviously, if you wanted to teach your students utilizing these concepts, you could actually you know, theme your class or tailor your class around these concepts specifically where, you know, you actually are teaching what spiritual edge is or you're teaching what psychological edge is by throughout the class instead of focusing on, you know, just the anatomical effect of a posture so or alignment. You kind of let the student free flow the posture, meaning you set them up with your basic cues, but you're not spending a whole lot of lip service on discussing the physical aspects of the pose. Now, mind you, if you need to describe a posture in great detail to get them in and out of it safely, of course, but during those postures where it doesn't need a lot of instruction, you can then talk about the psychological edge or the um, emotional edge of the posture. So if I'm teaching warrior two, right? And I want to talk about the 
emotional edge of warrior two. I might say something like, what does this posture make you feel like? What does it remind you of? Do you feel strong or is it making you feel insecure? If you feel insecure, ask yourself why. If the why is too stressful for you, let's bring it back to how you can feel stronger in warrior two, right? Um, if I'm utilizing warrior two and I'm touching on the emotional edge, or excuse me, the uh, psychological edge, I guess I kind of did that a bit, but I might say, does this posture bring up any ideas in your mind? And if they bring up any negative ideas in your mind, what is the opposite of that negative idea in a positive form? And I want you to allow that positive form to take space. Repeat the mantra in your mind on every exhale, letting go of that negative thought and inhaling the positive mantra. And then for the spiritual edge, I might say, I might talk about the spiritual, you know, idealisms behind warrior two, maybe um, different points of views or different studies or my own, right? Or I might encourage them to think of their own. Which chakras are we really focused on in this posture? Do you feel like it's helping lean into that chakra for you? Do you feel grounded, safe, and secure? Do you feel the sense of self-empowerment from this warrior posture? You know, something along those lines. And you could actually begin to find more influence of one posture than if you were just focused on the progression of that posture alone, right? So now when that student does that posture in another class or in any other circumstance, some of that experience will be in the back of their mind, which allows them to dig deeper into it, even to the point where they're able to maybe see their growth. Like, wow, the last time I, I did this posture, I was thinking of those negative thoughts or it made me feel weak or, and I feel so strong in this posture now or now those positive mantras, whenever I do this posture, I just think of self-empowerment, um, solar plexus chakra or, you know, it changes the connection that the student might have with the pose. Now, you wanna be mindful that you also do not accidentally create a bond with the student's thoughts and that posture in a negative way either. So this is something that you definitely want to study for your own personal practice and um, find the language that will guide your students in a way that allows them to explore this safely. Also, you're not living in these postures for super long. So before you know it, you'll be talking about the same effects of, you know, tree pose. So it'd be really exciting for you to be able to do that. Also, let's say you wanted to focus on the spiritual aspect by the chakra system. So every posture, you can just focus on which chakra it represents. Or you can focus on the Sanskrit word of the pose and the vibration of the Sanskrit word. So that's where it gets really exciting as a yoga teacher. All right. So we're going to wrap up today's lesson with talking about injuries caused by yoga. Now, beginners, as I mentioned, might be more stiff, but it's the advanced practitioners that are most likely to ignore their body's edge and move past that to the point of injury. So tension is when we restrict our range of motion. So we tense up before being able to actually do it. Now, one of the things that you want to think about is if you force yourself through that tension and you get injured, right? You can cause, you know, a sharp pain or something to alert you of that injury, then immediately you back off. But once you back off, it's important to ask yourself, what did I just do, right? Did I move into that posture too fast? Did I 
do something on the inhale instead of the exhale. Yes, that makes a huge difference. As we inhale the body, it naturally tenses up. As we exhale, we activate the parasympathetic nervous system. So if you hold your breath, your body's going to tense up, right? It's going to get you prepared for whatever's coming. Why are you holding your breath? Now, we typically hold our breath so we don't make a move, we don't make a sound. And why do we normally do that? So we can save our lives, right? Um, same thing with shortness of breath or rapid breathing. Now, if you're breathing slow, methodically, and with intention, you're telling your body, your mind, and you're making that connection that you're safe. So it's really important to utilize the breath in yoga for this reason alone because it's going to allow you to move at a calmer place and relax the muscles so that you can actually have the range of motion that you're looking for versus moving quick, tensing up, tweaking something, causing sharp pains, injuries, whatever may come, okay? So I'm trying to think if there's anything else that we can chat about before we go into our final questions. So I see we have three up now. Um, I do want to talk about this really quick. One of the things I teach my students who are very flexible is to not go into their full range of motion with flexibility, to focus more on strength postures, right? So if you're really flexible, then I want you to do more things that require you to be strong, like plank, chair, balancing on one leg, things like that, right? If you're really strong, right, if you have a lot of strength, then I want to encourage you to be more mobile, more flexible. And the reason being is when we create this balance in the body, then we tend to avoid the possibilities of injury from not having the strong muscles where we need them or not having the flexibility where we need it. And we need both. You cannot just be really, really strong. And I've seen it working with athletes. You know, they're very strong, but zero range of motion. Some can't even take their hands above their head without tightness or strain. And so we want to create flexibility and mobility, right? Pliability. But the more flexible you are, the more likely you're going to end up snapping a ligament and not having the muscles protecting the body, the ligaments, the tendons. Therefore, over time, you will not have the mobility because you would have worn out those parts of your body. So it's really important to remember that if you're very flexible and you're drawn to yoga because you can do all of the postures, you're very bendy, challenge yourself to be less bendy and to utilize more core strength, more strength in the legs and the arms, static poses like the warrior postures, for instance, standing poses, balancing on one foot poses, things that are going to force you to be less bendy, and more strength-based. And then, of course, vice versa. Now, the opposite is a little bit more challenging because you can't just immediately go into flexibility postures because your body is going to force you to take your time, right? So you have to really be strong in the mind because it may take you weeks of consistent practice to eventually you know, have that range of mobility and flexibility in the body. So it's going to be, you know, for the really flexible people, it's going to be more about their ego and not being so flexible. And for the really strong, less mobile flex and less flexible people, it's going to be more about not losing your patience with self. 
So that's pretty much it for today's lesson. I am going to answer these questions. So let me just take a look and see what they are. Okay, these are some good questions. Alrighty. So one of the first questions is, should we be teaching, should we be using the word edge, teaching edge at all? I think so. I think it's fair. I think it's, um, I think we shouldn't use the language without teaching the meaning um, because edge can mean a lot of things to a lot of different um, people. And as we talked about in the teachings of Your Body, Your Yoga, you do not want somebody who becomes fearful and you don't want somebody who is not respecting their own limitations and boundaries. So just telling your students, hey, take it to your edge or don't go past your edge without teaching what that means is probably not fair. So how do you teach edge? Well, you can teach it the way that we talked about it today where you use like the cliff analogy or you can literally progress a posture through levels, which is what I like to do, as I mentioned. And as I teach through the levels, so let's say we are, you know, in tree pose and you can just choose to have both feet grounded into the earth, take your hands above head, and that could be the most basic level of tree pose, right? Or you can use a prop like a wall or a chair and that might be the next progression of tree pose for you or you might kickstand but still have your toes touching the earth so on and so forth and as i'm progressing through this posture i'm saying if it's within your limitations if it's within your practice today feel free to take it to the next progression which is kickstanding your big toe to the earth, your heel atop of your ankle, or we're going to now lift that foot off of the earth and rest it on the ankle. Um, or if you feel like you can take your edge a little bit further. So you just start using the language. And as you use the language in different ways, then the definition as it pertains to yoga and your teachings will start to resonate with the student. So great question. And I don't think that anything should be off limits in teaching unless it's completely detrimental and counterproductive to what you're trying to accomplish. Um, because ultimately these are yoga speak type words, quote unquote yoga speak, because um, your student might go to another class or or learn another lesson and these terminologies might be used and if you're comfortable with utilizing them then feel free if you're not comfortable with using any concepts teachings language sanskrit words even postures don't teach them you know do not go past your own edge <laughs> as a yoga facilitator in that way um Another person's question is when I was mentioning interlacing my hands behind my back, how would I describe utilizing edge in that respect? Okay, um, so let's just say from a physical perspective only, okay? Since that's not technically asana, it's just um, an option of placement of body parts. So... That's a really good example because your physical edge may be very limited whenever it has to do with the shoulders. So anytime I'm even utilizing shoulders um, in my class, any posture or any movement that the shoulders are involved in, I or the knees for that matter, shoulders and knees and neck, <laughs> might as well add that, and back, okay. But um, seriously, the shoulders and the knees I always tell my students, dictate your practice. They will, they are the determining factor of where your edge will lie. So they run the show. They will police your practice. 
people's shoulders and knees are going to be constant reminders and, and also lower back, but definitely shoulders and knees are going to be constant reminders of things they've done in their life. So if they were, if they played sports, if they, you know, um, had any type of injuries, then typically they're going to show up somewhere in that, in those spaces. And once you have sort of, I guess, I don't want to use the word defect, but once you have this difference in your body, it is going to dictate your edge. So if a movement like interlacing your hands behind your back is impossible, maybe because of range of motion or injury or whatever it may be in your shoulders, um, then the only thing you can do is honor that edge. So it's more of, I think, introducing and, and reminding your students at all times to honor their body. Um, edges come in throughout the practice of honoring the body. So you're not going to say like, find your edge. If you can interlace your fingers behind your back that, you know, look for look for your edge here um, because body, the anatomical parts of the body is going to supersede the physical edge or the emotional edge or whatever. So even if emotionally you don't have any issues with doing a posture, if physically you have an injury or ailment, it's going to limit it. So that I think if I'm understanding your question correctly, if you're coming from it, from an anatomical therapeutic perspective, the edge is wherever that is. Um, so hopefully that answers that question. Okay. Um, it looks like I have time for one more question. And the question is, let me see. Okay. Um, sorry about that. I was just checking to make sure we I didn't miss anything that I was supposed to discuss today. Um, this last question that's coming in is just asking her exact words is, if I am a yoga teacher and my edge as a student is uh, more advanced than my students do, I mean, less advanced than my students. Sorry about that. I misread that. Do I teach? How do I teach the edge? Okay. Um, that's a great question because it's going to happen all of the time. You're always going to have a student that is more advanced in something than maybe your own personal practice. And that's fine. Um, the beauty of being a teacher is learning, you know, about your students. And although it's through your perception of your private personal practice as well, it shouldn't just be about that, right? Because you should have this level of, I don't want to use the word professionalism, but when I think of the word professionalism, I think of someone who is, the ultimate student of their craft, right? That's what makes you a true professional is you're always willing to learn. You're always looking to learn. You're always focused on being a student of your craft and being a craft person. Um, so whenever I'm teaching a student their edge, I'm not teaching them the edge. And this kind of leans into the last question as well. I'm not teaching the student their edge or the edge of that posture. So I'm not saying the edge of handstand is you looking, you know, you closing your eyes once your legs are in the sky. If you can close your eyes and maintain your posture, you know, that's you've reached the full edge or something like that. We're not utilizing edge like an action word. Um, it's more of a discernment. And you as a teacher should know the progression of a posture anyway. And studying your students and being able to start to make some general analysis of how bodies move through postures, for instance, um, provided that, you know, like for instance, if you're teaching a prenatal class and your students are between, they all have baby bumps. Let's just put it that way. They all have visible bumps. Well, you know, by analyzing your students, 
that they're going to have certain limitations, right? Um, because of the bump. Now, some students might have more limitations because of the size of their bump than other students, but it's definitely going to be much more limiting than someone without a bump. So I think everything as a yoga teacher is from that perspective, um, whether it's physical or psychological or emotional, or, you know, you're dealing with a trauma informed student, their bodies might be completely able to do the posture, but psychologically or emotionally, they're not going to be able to get there, um, during that session. Um, so the edge is, is not something you need to focus on, but rather something you can, um, partner with. I hope that answers the question because we are going to go ahead and end today's lesson to get you all out of here into your next session on time. Thank you so much, everybody, for allowing me to be a part of today's lesson, your yoga, your body, your yoga. Um, the I am being asked to kind of talk about what the next session is going to be about. We will be leaning into the physiology of our tissues, um, but we're going to begin with just how stress, tension, all of that stuff works, and um, just how to utilize that as a student and as a teacher um, when we think about stress at the cellular level. So I look forward to being able to teach that next lesson, and I hope you all have a good rest of your workshop. Please do go in peace. Namaste. I am so honored that you are listening to the Love Breezy Bree Yoga podcast. Never miss an episode. Download the free app on iTunes, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or Stitcher. Please also rate the show with five stars. I would greatly appreciate that. Visit me on my website at lovebreezybreeyoga.com. I include free yoga sequences every single month. You can leave a comment or message me and we can connect. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful, wonderful personal practice. Namaste. Namaste.